We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 349 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. Hope that you had a nice July 4th weekend. Happy birthday to the United States of America. The USA now is 246 years old. The the U.S. now has started its age 246 season. Think about that. U.S. now in the midst of its age 246 season. The U.S. now is nearly as old as Nelson Cruz. Look at it that way. Uh, We had a nice July 4th weekend. We went to the pool. We played outside. We ate hamburgers. Uh, We did not set off fireworks. Uh, If you did set off fireworks, I hope that that went well. Hopefully you did not have a Jason Pierre-Paul incident or anything like that. Uh, Well, we, during July 4th weekend, did have fireworks between Dan Snyder and the Washington Post. Danny and the Post were setting off fireworks at each other. Danny was trying to Jason Pierre-Paul the Post, and the Post was trying to to Jason Pierre-Paul Danny. Uh, Next segment, I want to get into this long-running feud between Dan Snyder and the Washington Post. This long-running feud between the Danny and the Post. Uh, Off an article that the Post came out with on Saturday morning and a statement from a spokesperson for Dan in response to that article. This was quite the statement from Dan's spokesperson. And this has been quite the feud between Dan and the Post for years now. Uh, We all know that Dan is worthy of the criticism and the scorn that he receives. At the same time, is the Washington Post at times guilty of going too far? Does the Washington Post at times seemingly go out of its way to bash Dan and the commanders? I have a few thoughts on all of that. I'll share those thoughts with you. Examine the history of the Dan Snyder-Washington Post feud and react to this statement from Dan's spokesperson next segment. Also on the show, I have a lot for you on the Nationals and the Orioles, as July 4th is the traditional mid-season holiday checkpoint of the baseball season. Hey, who's closer do you trust less right now? The Nats' Tanner Rainey or the Orioles' Jorge Lopez. Each guy had a horrendous 
July 4th weekend. Rainey pitched in two games, gave up a crucial home run in each game. Lopez pitched in three games, gave up a crucial home run in each game. Not so good. Uh, The Nats got swept in four games by the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park Friday through Monday. Boy, do the Marlins own the Nats this season. The Nats in the 2022 regular season now are 1-12 against the Marlins and are just 6-28 against the National League East. Yeah, you heard those records right. 1-12 and 6-28. Those records are putrid, man. Uh, The O's, they lost two or three games at the Minnesota Twins Friday through Sunday, but did then beat the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon. Plenty to discuss with both the Nats and the O's, including major Nats news on Saturday afternoon. The Nats announcing that they have exercised the 2023 club options in the contracts of Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. Uh, I have some things to say about that. We, over the July 4th weekend, did not have any major Wizards news in NBA free agency. Uh, Wizards unrestricted free agent Howell Neto on Friday reportedly agreed on a deal with the Cleveland Cavaliers, but, you know, his departure from the Wizards was expected. Otherwise, not much in the way of Wizards news over the weekend. Uh, the NBA's moratorium period will end on Wednesday. It is Wednesday Uh, July 6th at 12.01 p.m. Eastern that NBA teams can begin actually signing free agents to contracts and can actually begin officially making trades. So that's when the Wizards are re-signing of Bradley Beal and trade for Monte Morris and Will Barton and signing of DeLon Wright can all become official. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback on the Wizards agreeing to sign Bradley Beal to a Supermax contract, a reported five-year, $251 million deal. I talked about that on Friday's show, episode 348, including with my friend, my pal, Scott Jackson, uh, former studio host for the Washington Wizards Radio Network. Email from David. Did Scott Jackson just say Brad is not really an end of shot clock player? My God, what the heck are you doing paying a player who you can't trust with the ball when you need him most? I bet if you look it up, Al, that Bradley Beal is horrific at the ends of close games, bad and missed shots and turnovers. What a mess. <laughs> uh, thank you for the email, David. You know, it's funny. When Scott said that, I did not even think twice about it because what Scott said really has been true to varying degrees for a while. Uh, NBA.com has what are called clutch stats. Uh, these are stats for players in the last five minutes of fourth quarters and overtimes in which the point differentials are five or less. Bradley Beal hasn't had bad clutch stats every year. But he has had some woeful seasons in terms of clutch stats. Uh, The 2017-2018 regular season, Beal had a clutch field goal percentage of just 30.6. The 2019-2020 regular season, Beal had a clutch field goal percentage of just 36.8. This past regular season, the 2021-2022 regular season, Beal had a clutch field goal percentage of just 41.5, including going just two for 10 on threes. Now, small sample size, yes, but Beal has had bad clutch shooting numbers in a number of recent seasons, and he has committed turnovers in clutch time. 
Uh, for example, Beal this past regular season, over 75 clutch minutes, committed 13 turnovers. That works out to 6.9 turnovers per 40 minutes. That's brutal. $50 million per year. <laughs> Let that sink in. $50 million per year. Uh, email from Jim D on something that I have not yet talked about on this podcast, the expansion of the Big Ten via the poaching of the Pac-12's top two teams in terms of prominence, USC and UCLA. Uh, the Big Ten last Thursday night announced that, quote, the Big Ten Conference Council of Presidents and Chancellors voted unanimously today to admit the University of California, Los Angeles, and the University of Southern California to the Big Ten Conference effective August 2nd, 2024. Competition will begin for all conference sports in the 2024-25 academic year, end quote. Writes Jim D, hope all is well. What do you make of this news of both UCLA and USC jumping ship to join the Big Ten? I personally do not like the direction that college football is heading in at all. What made the college game so special to me and set it apart from the NFL were the regional rivalries and history and traditions that go back generations. Now college football is all about this Super League-esque approach in which seemingly the only conferences that matter are the SEC and the Big Ten, and they're only looking at it in terms of raking in the dough for both the broadcasters and the conferences. It's a sad reality that I fear is all the more true today. Since there is no stopping this rampaging money train now, I now see that my Wahoos and Virginia Tech, it's a package deal, need to flee the ACC as soon as possible and head to one of the two super conferences now. Hopefully, they'll be willing to accept us. Uh, Thank you for the email, Jim. Yeah, this is the new world order in college football, and this has been the direction that college football has been headed in for decades now. It's funny that Jim brought up Virginia Tech in the ACC because, to me, all of this started in many ways with the expansion of the ACC nearly 20 years ago. July 1st, 2003, Virginia Tech and Miami were officially introduced as the 10th and 11th members of the Atlantic Coast Conference at a press conference in Greensboro, North Carolina. The Hokies officially joined the ACC on July 1st, 2004. I remember this very clearly. I'm sure that many of you remember this very clearly. Virginia Tech and Miami bolting the Big East for the ACC was considered a massive deal at the time, and that seemed to trigger so much of the conference chaos in college football that has followed. It is sad to see the regional nature of college football completely disintegrate. It is ridiculous that schools like, say, Louisville and Pitt are in the ACC, are in the Atlantic Coast Conference. It is ridiculous that USC and UCLA, two schools based in Los Angeles, are joining the Big Ten, a conference based in the Midwest, and a conference that, despite its name, hasn't had 10 teams in seemingly forever at this point. Like, change the name of the conference already. Uh, Ideally, conferences in college sports would make a lot more sense geographically and would preserve all of these rivalries that we've had forever. It's still sad to me that we don't still have Georgetown and Syracuse in the Big East in college basketball, for example. But as we all know, man, money talks. And the big money is in these super conferences, especially when some conferences like the Big Ten and the SEC are run in much better fashion than other conferences like the ACC 
and the Pac-12. And so there has been an inevitability with all of this. We obviously are headed toward having two super conferences and then a bunch of also-ran conferences. I mean, everyone has been waiting for Notre Dame to join the Big Ten for years. Everyone has been waiting for Clemson to bolt the ACC for the SEC for years. Uh, More change is coming, and the change almost certainly will be in the form of the Big Ten and the SEC getting even stronger. Uh, And then as far as me personally as a Maryland fan who went to Maryland, look, I'm glad that my school is in a conference that is among the two super conferences in the Big Ten, but any idea that Maryland football is going to be anywhere in the same zip code as the true powers in the Big Ten now is even more of a far-fetched idea. Maryland, since joining the Big Ten, has consistently gotten smashed by ranked Big Ten teams. What's going to happen now that especially USC is joining the Big Ten? Trojans head coach Lincoln Riley is building a powerhouse at USC. If you're a Terrapins fan, prepare yourself for USC 54, Maryland 10. Uh, Prepare yourself for a whole lot of that in the coming years. Well, just as the Big Ten is becoming even more of a force in college football, so too is the law firm of Paulson and Nace becoming even more of a force among Washington, D.C. area law firms with the great work that Paulson and Nace continues to do. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611 and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the DC Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the DC Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202 202- 902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. So I, in the opening segment of Friday's show, episode 348, talked about how July 4th weekend, each of the last two years, was a weekend filled with major negative stuff regarding the team that we now call the Commanders. Uh, July 4th weekend 2020 was when everything changed for the Redskins. Thursday evening, July 2nd, 2020, statement from FedEx, quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name, and quote, that on Friday morning, July 3rd, 2020, statement from the Redskins that led with the following, quote, in light of recent events around our country and feedback from our community, the Washington Redskins are announcing the team will undergo a thorough review of the team's name, end quote. And the rest, as they say, is history. And then on Sunday, July 5th, 2020, 
We had multiple reports that Dan Snyder's then-minority owners, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith, wanted out. So the name change and the ownership turmoil, all of that erupted on July 4th weekend 2020. And then last year, we went into July 4th weekend with what came out on Thursday, July 1st, 2021, the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Not an actual written report, mind you, but a summary of the findings and the announcements of multiple measures being taken. A, the then Washington football team would be paying $10 million, which per the NFL was to be, quote, used to support organizations committed to character education, anti-bullying, healthy relationships, and related topics, end quote. B, Tanya Snyder, who was named co-CEO just two days earlier, was assuming responsibilities of CEO and overseeing all day-to-day team operations and representation of the club on all league activities as Dan Snyder, as he said in a statement, would be concentrating his time, quote, during the next several months on developing a new stadium plan and other matters End quote. July 4th weekend was quite the weekend for the Redskins slash Washington football team in each of the previous two years. I am happy to say that July 4th weekend 2022 did not include any truly major negative developments for the commanders, uh, although we did have something come up regarding something negative, and the something that came up is worth discussing. We on Saturday morning learned of a spokesperson for Dan Snyder having slammed the Washington Post in a statement. What's going on and has been going on for years between Dan Snyder and the Washington Post is very interesting. So the statement from a spokesperson for Dan slamming the Post was rooted in a Washington Post article that came out on Saturday morning. Headline quote, Daniel Snyder was not hands-off as an NFL owner, witnesses told committee. End quote. The article is about some of the reveals from the many documents that Congress's House Committee on Oversight and Reform released on the morning of June 22nd, which was the day on which we had that congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal, a hearing at which the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, testified virtually, but a hearing that Dan Snyder did not attend despite multiple requests from Congress to attend. The committee on June 22nd, hours before the start of the hearing, released a 29-page memorandum and four full transcripts of interviews that had been conducted in Congress's investigation into the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. This article that came out on Saturday morning by the Washington Post was about some of what was in all of these documents that the committee put out. Read the article by the Post, quote, according to sworn depositions of two former team executives whose tenures covered a 17-year span and additional testimony from another, Snyder didn't simply preside over an organization in which toxic behavior was rampant. Rather, he was an active participant, modeling abusive behavior that his top deputies often mimicked, creating a workplace that was corrosive to male executives, some of whom later regretted their actions, as well as young women End quote. Now, the Washington Post offered Dan Snyder a chance to respond to what was in the article. How about this statement from a spokesperson for Dan Snyder? Quote, despite Mr. Snyder's continued apologies and regret for the historical problems that arose at the team, the Washington Post goes out of its way to assail his character and ignore the successful efforts by both Dan and Tanya Snyder together with Jason Wright and Coach Ron Rivera for over the past two years to bring about a remarkable transformation to the organization. The Snyders will continue to focus on their league-leading fight to bring greater respect and much-needed diversity and equality to the workplace in the face of constant and baseless attacks from the media 
and elsewhere. End quote. Uh, there are a few things off that statement from Dan Snyder's spokesperson and off the article from the Washington Post that I want to get into with you. Uh, first of all, this continued insistence from Dan Snyder and the commanders that all of the problems that made up the workplace misconduct scandal are in the past is a complete lie if you believe what Congress said on June 22nd, that Dan, during the Beth Wilkinson investigation, was guilty of, quote, efforts to discredit victims and witnesses by launching a shadow investigation to influence the NFL's internal investigation into workplace misconduct at the team. And, quote, that internal investigation was the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Continued what Congress said on June 22nd, quote, during the Wilkinson investigation, Mr. Snyder and his lawyers sent private investigators to the homes of former cheerleaders, offered hush money to try to dissuade them from cooperating with the investigation, and gathered thousands of emails from former Commander's President Bruce Allen in an effort to demonstrate that Bruce Allen had created a toxic environment at the Washington Commanders, end quote. If you believe that all of that is true, then the ideas that Dan Snyder has been a good boy for years now, and that the only workplace misconduct scandal problems for the team happened years ago, are total fake news. The Beth Wilkinson investigation happened in 2020 and 2021. If Dan was doing these things in 2020 and 2021, then things are not better with the commanders right now from a standpoint of workplace culture. That's why that statement that commander's head coach Ron Rivera came out with on the night of June 22nd was flawed. Ron on the night of June 22nd came out with a statement in which he said, quote, change the culture check, end quote, as if the culture has been changed, you know, mission accomplished, check. Well, if this stuff about Dan conducting a shadow investigation to influence the Beth Wilkinson investigation is true, if this stuff about Dan and his lawyers having sent private investigators to the homes of former cheerleaders and having offered hush money to try to dissuade them from cooperating with the investigation is true, uh, then no, you can't say change the culture check because this stuff happened within the last two years. So that needs to be said. Uh, also, Dan Snyder's spokesperson portraying Dan and the commanders as victims was comical, okay? <laughs> Dan and the team are not the victims in this entire situation. And I also need to say this. I am so sick of the commanders patting themselves on the back for their diversity. Enough with the self-congratulations on the front office now being so diverse. You don't get to have a workplace that's terrible for years, then get forced into making a bunch of changes, and then celebrate yourself for making these changes. It doesn't work like that. To say nothing of how insulting it is to the people who you hired to constantly bring up their skin color as if that was a primary reason for them being hired. You know, I found it very notable that Ron Rivera in that statement that came out on June 22nd said about the hiring of Jason Wright as team president in August 2020, quote, we agreed that Jason Wright was the best person, not because he checked off a box as a minority, but because of his experience as an NFL player, his education and work experience as a partner at McKinsey and Company, end quote. Good for Ron for saying what he said about Jason. Quote, we agreed that Jason Wright was the best person, not because he checked off a box as a minority, 
And quote, whether you like the job that Jason Wright is doing as commander's team president or not, I was glad that Ron said what he said about Jason because the team constantly referring to how diverse it is makes it sound like Jason being black was why he was hired as team president and makes it sound like Martin Mayhew being black was why he was hired as general manager and makes it sound like other people who aren't white men have been hired because they aren't white men. And look, who knows what truly went into the hirings of these people, but I think that it's insulting to constantly bring up what these people look like in talking up these people. You should tout these people for being great at their jobs, not because of what they look like. Uh, Now, whether Jason and Martin and others are great at their jobs can be debated, but whether they're great at their jobs isn't the point here. You know, is Jason Wright the first black team president in NFL history? Yes, he is. And that fact certainly was worthy of being mentioned when he was hired in August 2020. But Dan Snyder and the commanders should not be pointing out in every press release and statement seemingly how diverse the team is. Let the diversity speak for itself. Stop mentioning it every five minutes. Because to me, in constantly mentioning the diversity, Dan and the team make it sound like the diversity is a function of the team wanting everyone to see how diverse it is, as opposed to the diversity being a function of the team becoming more diverse for the right reasons. You know, it's like a guy who donates money to charity and then constantly brags about having donated money to charity. Did the guy donate the money to charity because he is a truly a charitable or did the guy donate the money to charity just so he could brag to anyone who would listen that he donated money to charity? And especially when Dan Snyder and the team had a workplace that was an embarrassment for years. How about some humility before you start bragging about how diverse you are and bragging about how great your workplace now is? So I did want to say all of that off this statement from Dan Snyder's spokesperson. But I also want to get into this dynamic between Dan and the Washington Post. And they'll do that after I tell you about my guy, Kellen Hunt, uh, if you are wanting to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, if you are on the hunt for a home in the D.C. area, get with Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. If you have questions or concerns about buying a home right now, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt has his finger on the pulse of developments all around the Washington, D.C. area. He's a DMV native. He lives and breathes the culture of the area. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods and economical development and schools and market conditions and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And Kellen Hunt closes deals. He wins. He is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. And Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Who doesn't want some extra money right now, given inflation and gas prices? Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book your call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Dot com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell. Visit CloseItWithKell.com and tell Kell 
that Al Galdi sent you. All right, so the Dan Snyder Washington Post feud. It is maybe slash probably the longest running feud in Washington, D.C. sports. Name me a D.C. sports feud that's still going on that has been going on for longer than Dan Snyder versus the Washington Post. This is a feud that goes back well over a decade now. Uh, The feud really got going in the late aughts, like 2008, 2009, when Jason Lock and Fora covered the Redskins. Uh, Dan Snyder and the Redskins' then executive vice president of football operations, Vinny Serrato, and the then voice of the Redskins, Larry Michael, uh, they all hated Jason Lock and Fora. And there's irony in this because Jason and Vinny now work for the same radio station, uh, 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore. Uh, There's another irony in all of this because the Washington Post was a Redskins sponsor for years. And I know this because I did the reads. Uh, I hosted the official Redskins postgame show on the Washington Redskins radio network for seven seasons, 2009 through 2015. And for most, if not all of that run, the Washington Post was a sponsor of the show. If I remember correctly, The Washington Post was the sponsor of the offensive player of the game. So I would name an offensive player of the game, and then that was brought to you by the Washington Post. You know, our offensive player of the game is Jabbar Gaffney. (laughs) That's brought to you by the Washington Post. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Uh, The Post was a sponsor of the official Redskins postgame show for years. So while this feud between Dan Snyder and the Post was going on, the Post was paying Dan money to be a sponsor on the team's post-game radio show. How crazy is that? Uh, And the feud has raged on for years. Uh, We have something like Sally Jenkins, columnist for the Washington Post, having eviscerated Dan Snyder countless times in her columns. Heck, we on Monday morning (laughs) got yet another Sally column smashing Dan. Headline, quote, this new Daniel Snyder seems an awful lot like the old one, end quote. Uh, The Washington Post crushed the Redskins for their handling of the firing of Scott McLuhan as general manager in March 2017. That was a big deal. Uh, Of course, it was the Post that in July 2020 broke the workplace misconduct scandal. It is the Post that has been all over the workplace misconduct scandal for two years now with a number of articles and investigative pieces and columns. And now we have arrived at a point at which a spokesperson for Dan Snyder in a statement has specifically called out the Washington Post and slammed it in a statement, quote, despite Mr. Snyder's continued apologies and regret for the historical problems that arose at the team, the Washington Post goes out of its way to assail his character and ignore the successful efforts by both Dan and Tanya Snyder together with Jason Wright and Coach Rod Rivera for over the past two years to bring about a remarkable transformation to the organization. The Snyders will continue to focus on their league-leading fight to bring greater respect and much-needed diversity and equality to the workplace in the face of constant and baseless attacks from the media and elsewhere. End quote. I tell you, the Dan Snyder Washington Post feud is unlike anything that we have had in Washington, D.C. sports and maybe in all of sports, period. I mean, how many other owners in sports have had this much of a longstanding feud with a singular media outlet? I mean, certainly not in D.C. sports. We haven't had anything like this with other D.C. teams, the Nationals, the Capitals, the Wizards. Uh, Those teams and or their ownerships have never had a feud with a media outlet like the feud that Dan has with the Post. And of course, so much of this has been on Dan Snyder. He has been a terrible owner 
for the Redskins slash Washington football team slash commanders. He, at the very least, presided over a horrendous workplace culture, if not outright participated in the horrendous workplace culture. And at this point, if you don't think that he participated in the horrendous workplace culture to at least some degree, then I can't help you, okay? Because the evidence at this point is pretty overwhelming. And so, so many of the Washington Post articles exposing things about Dan and his team, and so many of the Washington Post columns criticizing Dan and the team have been valid and have been warranted. I mean, you talk about journalism that affects change. The Washington Post is what ignited this workplace misconduct scandal. The Washington Post provided a means by which all of these former Redskins employees came forward and broke the lid off what went on behind the scenes with the team for years. And I think that the Washington Post deserves a lot of credit for that. However, at the same time, I do think that a few other things are true about the Dan Snyder-Washington Post feud. I do think that at times the Post has gone overboard. And one of those times to me was the Post coverage of the firing of Scott McLuhan in March 2017. The Post coverage of the firing of McLuhan in March 2017 was way too one-sided and unfair to the team. And I say this as someone who likes Scott McLuhan. Heck, Scott was on this podcast not long ago. Episode 317, Scott McLuhan, outstanding breakdowns of key picks by the commanders in the 2022 NFL draft. Jahan Dodson, Sam Howell, Fedarian Mathis, Brian Robinson Jr. Scott gave us some terrific story time on convincing Dan Snyder that Kirk Cousins needed to be the Redskins starting quarterback in 2015. But the truth is that the Redskins fired Scott McLuhan for cause. The matter went to arbitration and the Skins in October 2018 won the arbitration. And yet the coverage by the Post and other media outlets in March 2017 made it sound like the only reason that the Skins fired Scott was because our then-team president, Bruce Allen, was jealous of Scott. And look, no defender of Bruce am I, okay? No defender of Brucifer am I. And like I said, I like Scott a lot. I believe that Scott's a good man. I believe that Scott knows football very well. But fair is fair. There were reasons, well beyond Bruce's jealousy, that the Skins fired Scott. They fired him for cause, and they won the arbitration, which is not an easy thing to win. So in the case of the Scott McLuhan firing, I do think that the Washington Post was guilty of biased media coverage. I do think that at times, (laughs) these Sally Jenkins sledgehammer columns crushing Dan Snyder are too much. I mean, she's a great columnist, okay? She's very good with words, but, uh, you know, like, how many times are you going to write the same column? Again, we on Monday morning got yet another Sally column destroying Dan. And Dan is worthy of this criticism, but I don't know. To me, the messaging at some point does lose meaning when you keep sending the same message over and over and over and over and over again, even if the message is valid. The message starts to fall on deaf ears. You know, we could have gotten a column on Monday morning on the commanders having agreed with receiver Terry McLaurin on a contract extension. That was really big news last week, but instead we get another column crushing Dan Snyder. And so that brings us to this piece that came out on Saturday morning by the Washington Post about some of what was in all of these documents that the House Committee on Oversight and Reform put out 
on June 22nd. All that this article by the Post was, was a review of some of what was in these documents that, again, were released on June 22nd. Saturday was July 2nd. I don't know about you, but I read the article and I said to myself, why are you on July 2nd coming out with an article about stuff that came out on June 22nd? There was nothing new in the article in terms of advancing the story. The article was a rehashing of some of the materials that Congress put out on June 22nd. And these materials are important materials, make no mistake. But the article was positioned like it was some new major reveal in the workplace misconduct scandal. The article was not some new major reveal in the workplace misconduct scandal. And if you are an astute commander's observer, and I know that many of you listening are astute commander's observers, you realized that the article was not some new major reveal in the workplace misconduct scandal when you read the article. And so when this Dan Snyder spokesperson in that statement attacked the Washington Post, I do think that that resonated with some people. Not that they feel sympathy for Dan, but that there is an element here of the Post at times like going out of its way to hammer Dan and the team. A July 2nd rehashing of stuff that has been out there since June 22nd wasn't needed. There was nothing new in the article. A good bit of what was in the article was stuff that I talked about on this podcast weeks ago now. And as this saga of the workplace misconduct scandal and Dan Snyder and Congress uh, goes on and on and on and may well all be going nowhere in terms of Dan ultimately being out as owner of the commanders, I do think that we have reached a point of Dan Snyder fatigue for a lot of people. And fatigue in multiple ways. A, fatigue from a standpoint of people are sick of him being the owner of the team and want him out. But also B, fatigue from a standpoint of people are sick of hearing about all of this stuff. And so when the Washington Post comes out with an article that's nothing more than a rehashing of stuff that came out 10 days earlier, I think that that can end up making people angry at the Post as opposed to being angry at Dan. And make no mistake, the entity most worthy of anger in all of this is Dan Snyder, not the Washington Post. But that doesn't mean that the Post doesn't at times go too far. That doesn't mean that the Post doesn't have it out for Dan. That doesn't mean that Dan attacking the Post can't work in terms of winning some public relations points. I think that it can, and I think that it has. Uh, I am not one of these people who believe that the owner of the Post, Jeff Bezos, is behind the Post constantly bashing Dan because Bezos wants to buy the commanders. Media doesn't work like that. The owner of a newspaper doesn't just order his writers to attack someone, and then all of the writers get in line to attack that someone. The writers for the Washington Post who have written these articles about the workplace misconduct scandal are very respected and well-established writers. People like Liz Clark and Will Hobson and Mark Maskey and Nikki Javala. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people who buy into the idea of the Post going after Dan being fueled by Bezos. Like, just because something isn't true doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of people who believe that something to be true. Perception often is reality, and certainly it is an interesting dynamic, if nothing else, uh, in having this media outlet with which Dan Snyder has feuded for years, and the outlet now is owned by a guy in Jeff Bezos, who so many would love to see buy the commanders from Dan, and who many believe would love to buy the commanders from Dan. 
And so it rages on. Uh, the Dan Snyder Washington Post feud, yet another layer to this entire workplace misconduct scandal. That statement from the Dan Snyder spokesperson touting the commanders for their, <laughs> for their diversity and painting the team as a victim and slamming the Washington Post uh, was some statement for so many reasons. It's not often that you get a statement like that from a team owner, but uh, of course, it's not often that you have a team owner like our commander's co-owner and co-CEO, Dan Snyder. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny. Happy Thanksgiving. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, They, for a second consecutive year, had a nightmare of a July 4th weekend. A four-game sweep at Nationals Park on July 4th weekend for a second straight year. Last year, the Los Angeles Dodgers. This year, the Miami Marlins, who own the Nats this season. I'll get into what happened after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So our last segment talked about how July 4th weekend was not a good weekend for the team that we now call the Commanders the previous two years, 2020 and 2021. Well, we now can say that July 4th weekend has been a bad weekend for the Nationals in each of the last two years, 2021 and 2022. The Nats 2021 season truly started to fall apart on July 4th weekend, 2021, during which 
The Nats got swept in four games by the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park. Well, the Nats 2022 season continued to go poorly with what happened on July 4th weekend 2022. The Nats getting swept in four games by the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. Friday night, a 6-3 loss. Saturday, a 5-3 loss. Sunday afternoon, a 7-4, 10-inning loss. Monday, a 3-2, 10-inning loss. The Nats in the 2022 regular season now are 29-53, second-worst record in the National League. But how about this? The Nats in the 2022 regular season now are 1-12 against the Marlins. Yes, 1-12. The Marlins are not a good team. Their record in this 2022 regular season is a mere 38 and 40. Now, the Marlins do have a positive run differential, plus 14, but still, the Marlins are not a good team. Uh, Also, the Nats in this series did not face the Marlins' ace, Sandy Alcantara, nor did the Nats face the man who was arguably the Marlins' best position player, second baseman Jazz Chisholm Jr. He's on the 10-day injured list, and yet, the Nats got swept in four games by the Marlins' at Nationals Park, and now are a pathetic 1-12 and against the Marlins in the 2022 regular season. The Marlins are the Nats' daddy this season. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? Yes, thank you, Arnold. Who is the Nats' daddy? The Marlins are the Nats' daddy at least right now. There's also this, just in case you as a Nats fan don't feel bad enough, the Nats with these two extra inning losses to the Marlins over the final two games of the series now are 3-16 and in extra inning games over the last two regular seasons. The rule of the automatic runner on second base to begin extra innings has not been kind uh, to the Nats. Uh, Before we get into what went on in this series, though, I do want to address what was the most significant Nats development of July 4th weekend. The Nats on Saturday afternoon announced that they have exercised the 2023 contract options on President of Baseball Operations and General Manager Mike Rizzo and Manager Davey Martinez. The contract situations of Mike and Davey had been looming. The Nats' ownership uncertainty made the contract situations of Mike and Davey even murkier, but each guy now is under contract through next season, uh, said the managing principal owner of the Nats, at least for now, uh, Mark Lerner, in the press release issued by the Nats, quote, Mike and Davey have been leading the Washington Nationals for several years, and it is only right to continue with them at the forefront. Mike has led us through many different phases of our organization, and we believe his work during this current phase will pay off in the end. Davey has done a tremendous job in the clubhouse and in the dugout for five seasons. His continued determination and unwavering support of his players makes us proud. We are lucky to have Mike and Davey leading the way. End quote. Uh, The Nats in September 2020 announced multi-year contract extensions for both Mike Rizzo and and Davey Martinez. The reporting at the time was that each guy got a three-year extension, but we this past May learned that each extension was in fact a two-year extension with a club option for 2023. The Nats per Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post had until July 15th to exercise the 2023 club options on Mike and Davey, and now those options have been exercised. Uh, Davey, by the way, reportedly will make $3.5 million for the 2023 season. Uh, That stands out. 
That is a lot of money for a manager, especially a Nats manager. We know that the learners do not like to pay managers. Ask Bud Black. Uh, The Nats hired Mike Rizzo in July 2006. Yeah, he has been with the organization for 16 years. The Nats promoted Mike to interim general manager in March 2009, removed the interim tag from his GM title in August 2009. Uh, Mike Rizzo, to me, is arguably the second best executive in Washington, D.C. sports history. And I don't say that flippantly. I really do believe this. Mike Rizzo may well be the second best executive in D.C. sports history. Former Redskins general manager Bobby Bethard is number one. He has to be number one. There's no debating that. But I think that you can make a very strong case for Mike Rizzo being number two. That said, Mike Rizzo is most responsible for the current state of the Nats. Mike Rizzo's bad drafts really have come back to bite the Nats. Uh, Mike has had a terrible run of drafts for the Nats for nearly a decade now, and the lack of quality young players, coupled with problems with the Nats' player development, have put the Nats in the position that they're in. Uh, The Nats are a bad team, okay? And the Nats may well be a bad team for a while here. We'll see. Hopefully, the rebuild doesn't take long. But the rebuild may take long. You know, the Nats still are in dire need of more good young players. So as good of an overall job as Mike Rizzo has done as Nats GM, it's not a given that he's the right guy for the team moving forward, especially when you consider that in today's Major League Baseball, the modern general manager is a younger guy with an analytics background. Mike Rizzo is an older guy with a scouting background. Doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't mean that he can't turn the Nats around. But, you know, the Nats are going against the grain here a bit and still having a guy like Mike Rizzo as the team's president of baseball operations and general manager. But to me, Mike Rizzo does deserve the chance to general manage his way out of this. In other words, I think Mike Rizzo has earned enough capital here to where he deserves the opportunity to get the Nats out of the hole that they're currently in. I don't think that it would be fair to just get rid of Mike Rizzo now off all of the good that he has done, especially from a standpoint of trades. Mike Rizzo has made so many great trades as Nats GM. Uh, and then with Davey Martinez, so the Nats hired Davey as their manager in October 2017. This season is Davey's fifth season as Nats manager. He is by far the longest tenured manager for the franchise since it came to Washington, D.C., beginning with the 2005 season. But what's funny with Davey is that four of his five seasons have not gone well, if you think about it. 2018, 2020, and 2021 did not go well, and 2022 is not going well. Uh, But, of course, the one Davey season that did go well went oh so well, right? The Nats' 2019 season resulted in a World Series championship, and Davey was outstanding that season. He was masterful with the way that he managed in that 2019 postseason. And, you know, nobody who truly follows the Nats blames Davey Martinez for the fall of the Nats over the last few years. The fall is much more on Mike Rizzo than the fall is on Davey Martinez. I think it's interesting that the Nats announced picking up these 2023 club options for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez on Saturday afternoon. I mean, you think about this, you want to bury something, you announce it on the Saturday afternoon of July 4th weekend. I wonder if the Nats just didn't want a lot of attention being paid to this because uh, if you're trying to maximize the attention for something, you don't announce that something on the Saturday afternoon of July 4th weekend. Uh, And also keep in mind, each guy is only under contract through next season now. So we will be dancing this dance again next year 
and perhaps with new ownership for the Nats. Uh, we shall see. As for the Nats getting swept in four games by the Marlins at Nationals Park, terrible series for the Nats offense. Uh, the Nats over the four games, which included two 10-inning games, totaled a mere 12 runs. The Nats hit into nine double plays in the series, including three double plays in each of the final two games. Uh, now, the Nats did rally in games three and four of the series. The Nats in their 7-4 10-inning loss on Sunday afternoon overcame a 2-0 seventh inning deficit. Victor Robles had a huge hit in the game. Uh, he, in a Nats one-run ninth, had a two-out first pitch game-tying RBI single to left center field to tie the game at four. By the way, Robles was the Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter in all four games in this series. When's the last time Victor Robles started four consecutive games for the Nats as he ended up doing in this series? And then the Nats in their 3-2-10 inning loss on Monday overcame a 1-0 eighth inning deficit. So the boys did battle, as Davey Martinez likes to say, but uh, the boys did not battle enough. Uh, Juan Soto got injured in this series. Uh, he was an ad starting right fielder and number two batter in each of the first three games of the series. Soto on Sunday afternoon drew two walks, but he left the game after four innings due to left calf tightness. Uh, he did not start Monday's game, although he did pinch hit, and that was a good sign. Uh, Soto in the bottom of the eighth drew a one-out pinch, four-pitch walk. So the injury does not appear to be a serious injury if he was pinch hitting the game after leaving a game uh, with the injury. Soto on Friday night, one for three with a double and a walk. Uh, these were two really impressive plate appearances by Soto. Soto in an at's one run fourth, drew a leadoff eight pitch walk despite having been down in the count at 1.02. And then Soto in an at's two run six had a leadoff double down the right field line on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Soto on Saturday, one for three with a solo homer and a walk. Uh, Soto in the Nats, one run six, smashed a leadoff opposite field homer to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 4-3. Soto in the 2022 regular season still has some underwhelming numbers. Batting average is just 226, slugging percentage of just 449. He does have a good on-base percentage, 384. Um, you know, the Nats are required to have at least one player on the National League All-Star team for the All-Star game, which will take place at Dodger Stadium on July 19th. Soto could be an All-Star. That, though, would be based more on reputation and star power. The Nats player who is most deserving of being an All-Star this season is Josh Bell. I mean, make no mistake, Josh Bell is worthy of of being an all-star, and he over the July 4th weekend had another impressive series. Now, he didn't do a ton in games two and four of the series, but he did do quite a bit in games one and three of the series. Josh Bell was an ad starting first baseman in all four games in the series. He was an ad's number three batter in games one through three. He was an ad's number two batter in game four. Bell on Friday night, two for four with a double and a single, each hit an opposite field hit. Uh, Bell in the bottom of the first had a two-out opposite field double to right field. Bell in an ad's one-run fourth had an opposite field single to right field on a 1-2 pitch. And then Bell on Sunday afternoon, 2-for-4 with a big solo homer, a double, and a hit-by-pitch. Uh, Bell in the bottom of the fourth drew a hit-by-pitch. Bell in an at's two-run seventh had a leadoff opposite field double to left field despite having been down to the count at 1.12. And that hit broke up a no-hit bid by the Marlins starting pitcher, Pablo Lopez. Uh, yeah, the Nats flirted with being no hit in this series. And then Bell in the Nats one run eighth, a two out tie breaking solo homer off Marlins reliever Stephen Okert on a bomb to left field for a 3 2 Nats lead. And for the first Nats lead in the series, uh, Okert came into the game with an ERA plus of 200 
in the 2022 regular season. He had been outstanding this season. He had dominated the Nats, but he got God by Josh Bell via this home run on Sunday afternoon. The homer winner projected 411 feet per stat cast. Uh, Josh Bell has been tremendous this season. Bell in the 2022 regular season, batting average of 318, on base percentage of 399, slugging percentage of 514. Enjoy him while you can, because Josh Bell would seem to be a lock to be traded by the Nats come the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd, as uh, this season is a contract season for Bell. Unless the Nats sign him to a contract extension prior to August 2nd, uh, to me, you got to trade him because the value is high and you can't risk not trading him and then losing him for nothing via free agency this coming offseason. Uh, the only other Nats player who truly had a good offensive series was Kbert Ruiz. Uh, he was an Nats starting catcher in games one and three. He came off the bench in games two and four, and he had a pinch single in each of those games. And he made some impressive defensive plays in the series, too. Ruiz on Friday night as the Nats' number five batter, one for four with a two-run homer. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats' two-run six, had a two-out first pitch, two-run homer to center field to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-3. Also from Kbert Ruiz in that game on Friday night, top of the sixth, he picked off Joey Wendell at first base for the third out with the bases loaded. Tremendous play by Kbert Ruiz. Boy, has he become a master of the back pick, you know, picking off a runner at first base. Also credit to Josh Bell, who made a nice catch and tag of Wendell uh, at first base. Ruiz on Saturday came off the bench. Bottom of the seventh had a pinch one-out single to center field. Ruiz on Sunday afternoon as the Nats number six batter, 0 for 2 with a walk and a hit by pitch. Andy gunned down John Birdie. Uh, Ruiz threw out John Birdie on an attempted steal of second base for the second out in the top of the third. This was significant. Understand who John Birdie is. John Birdie came into the game at 25 for 27 on stolen bases in the 2022 regular season. And Birdie came into the game leading the majors with 25 stolen bases in the 2022 regular season. And yet, Caper Ruiz gunned down John Birdie. I tell you, we are seeing some really encouraging defensive signs here from Cape Barrett Ruiz that this guy could be a defensive stud for the Nats at a position that is of premium importance in baseball, the position of catcher. And then Ruiz on Monday came off the bench and had not one but two singles. Uh, Ruiz in the bottom of the eighth had a one-out pinch single up the middle of the pitcher's mound, and Ruiz in the bottom of the tenth had a two-out single to center field. While we're talking the Nats at catcher, uh, Tress Barrera is back. The Nats on Friday afternoon optioned catcher Riley Adams to AAA Rochester and recalled catcher Tress Barrera from Rochester. Uh, Riley Adams just has not played well so far this season at the major league level. Riley Adams in the 2022 regular season at the major league level, 27 games, 88 plate appearances, OPS plus of just 75. Uh, he was quite productive for the Nats at the major league level last season. He has struggled uh, so far at the major league level this season. Uh, Barrera last season was productive for the Nats at the major league level as well. Uh, Tress Barrera in the 2021 regular season for the Nats at the major league level, OPS plus of 112, over 107 plate appearances in 30 games. And sure enough, what did Tress Barrera do in his first major league plate appearance of this 2022 regular season? Barrera on Saturday as an Nats starting catcher and number eight batter, one for two with a two-run single. Barrera in the Nats two-run second, a two-out two-run single to left field to tie the game at two, despite having been down to the count at one point, one two, uh, Barrera was an ad starting catcher and number eight batter on Monday. 
He went 0 for 2. Uh, but yeah, not much good for the Nats offensively in this series. Uh, Nelson Cruz, he was the Nats starting DH in all four games in the series. He on Sunday afternoon in the Nats two-run seventh did have an RBI single to center field to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1. He on Monday in the bottom of the ninth did have a leadoff single to left field on a 1-2 pitch. But Cruz over his last seven games now is just 4 for 28. 4 for 28 with four singles and two walks. He is back to not hitting for power. He's back to making way too many outs. Uh, not good from old Nelly Cruz here. Uh, Luis Garcia did have some hits in the series. He was an ad starting shortstop in all four games in the series. He on Monday in the Nats one run eighth had a one out RBI single to right field to tie the game at one. That was a big hit. But Luis Garcia also had two more bad defensive plays this season in this series. Garcia on Friday night in the Marlins three run third, a very poor relay throw to home plate on a Garrett Cooper two out RBI double toward the left field corner for a 3-0 Marlins lead. And Garcia on Saturday, top of the fourth, a one out throwing error on a full count grounder off the bat of John Birdie. Luis Garcia continues for the most part to hit, but Luis Garcia continues for the most part to be a concern defensively at shortstop. It may well be that second base is his position at the major league level, but in this season, given how bad that the Nats are, to me, there's no harm in finding out if Luis Garcia can play that more important defensive position of shortstop. Uh, the Nats pitching was very mixed in this four-game sweep to the Marlins at Nationals Park. Let's start with the positives. Patrick Corbin and Eric Fetty. Yeah, Patrick Corbin, a positive. In fact, Patrick Corbin in game four was very good for a second consecutive start. Uh, Corbin in the 3-2-10 inning loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Monday, one run in seven innings. Uh, now, he did give up eight hits, two doubles, and six singles, and he only recorded four strikeouts, but he only issued one walk, and he threw a lot of strikes, 97 pitches, 67 strikes, versus just 30 balls, and this was off what Corbin did this past Tuesday night, 3-1 win over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park, Corbin in that game, one run in eight innings, 12 strikeouts, he was outstanding in that game, uh, his 12 strikeouts tied for his most strikeouts ever in a major league game. Uh, now, look, neither the Marlins nor the Pirates are a great hitting team, but of course, Patrick Corbin over the last three seasons has been one of the worst pitchers in the majors. So to me, you take any success that this guy has at this point willingly and with open arms. And Patrick Corbin over his last two starts has been quite good. What this means, who the heck knows? But it's nice to have this. Uh, here was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Monday afternoon on Patrick Corbin over his last two starts. Yeah, he's been he's been attacking the strike zone, and I talked a lot about his slider, how how he's actually throwing a slider um, a little harder, um, which and it looks like his fastball coming in, so it was, it's been very effective. So I think today maybe he only threw two or three changes, which you know after the game we talked, he said I, I didn't feel like I had to throw many changes today, and I said well when your slider's that you know like that and you're throwing the fastball like that, yeah, I mean that's that's great. I mean um, early on in the game, you know they you know they were trying to ambush him because they know he's got be around the plate, um, but he handled himself really well. Uh, like I said, he gave us uh, seven strong innings. I mean, he had 97 pitches, I think, when I took him out, and, and part of that is, he, you know, he has no rest in between his next start. Start before that, he had 113, So, um, but he's pitching really well. 
Yeah, so Patrick Corbin was good on Monday, and Eric Fetty was good on Sunday afternoon. Fetty in the 7-4, 10-inning loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Two runs in six innings with six strikeouts. Uh, he gave up just three hits, a homer, a double, and a single. He issued three walks and a wild pitch. He threw 106 pitches, 64 strikes versus 42 balls. However, Josiah Gray and Jackson Tatro struggled over the first two games of the series, and Tatro now is going to be out for a while. So, Gray, he in the 6-3 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Friday night, six runs in five and two-thirds innings. Uh, Gray gave up a whopping 10 hits, a homer, two doubles, and seven singles. He did have six strikeouts versus two walks, but he over his five and two-thirds innings threw 95 pitches, did throw a good number of strikes, 62 strikes versus 33 balls, but still 95 pitches over five and two-thirds innings. Disappointing to see Josiah Gray pitch like this, given how good he had been in each of his previous two outings. A 2-1-10 inning loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on June 18th. Gray tossed six scoreless innings. A 3-2 loss at the Texas Rangers on June 25th. Gray allowed two runs in seven innings on nine strikeouts versus one walk. Gave up just four hits in that game. Uh, Josiah Gray now in the 2022 regular season has an ERA of 422. He has been more good than bad, but there does remain a lack of consistency with Josiah Gray. And then there's Jackson Tatro. And we on Monday morning got bad news regarding him. The Nats on Monday morning placed Tatro on the 15-day injured list, retroactive to July 3rd, with a stress fracture of the right scapula. Uh, the Nats recalled reliever Jordan Weems from AAA Rochester as the corresponding roster move. Look, I'm no doctor, but a stress fracture of the right scapula, does that sound like something that'll be healed in 15 days? I would expect Jackson Tatro to be out for a while here. Tatro in the 5-3 loss to the Marlins in Nationals Park on Saturday was bad for the first time in three starts. Four runs in four innings. He gave up four hits, a homer, a triple, a double, and a single. So he gave up the cycle, uh, but he issued five walks. That really was a problem. Him issuing five walks, he recorded just one strikeout, and he threw a lot of balls. 84 pitches, 44 strikes, versus 40 balls. Uh, the Nats on June 14th selected the contract of Jackson Tatro from AAA Rochester. He was called up to the majors more out of necessity than anything. It's not like he was killing it for Rochester. Tatro over 12 starts for Rochester this season, ERA of 419, but he ended up doing well in his second and third major league starts. 9-3 win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on June 19th. Tatro, three runs, all of which were unearned in seven innings. He became just the third Nats pitcher in the 2022 regular season to complete at least seven innings in a game. And then Tatro in a 6-4 win at the Texas Rangers on June 26th, one run in six innings. But he struggled this past Saturday, and now he's going to be out, it would appear, for a while. And then there is the Nats bullpen in this four-game sweep to the Marlins at Nationals Park. You know, the Nets bullpen actually was good with the exceptions of two guys. And these exceptions ended up standing out a whole lot. Uh, the closer, Tanner Rainey, who made a longer B, the Nets closer, and Carl Edwards Jr. Uh, Rainey gave up a costly home run in each of the final two games in the series. The 7-4-10 inning loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Tanner Rainey in the top of the ninth blew the save. He issued a two-out six-pitch walk of Avisail Garcia, despite him having been down in the count of 1.12. And Rainey then gave up a two-out, two-run homer to Jesus Sanchez to the second deck in right field for a 4-3 Marlins lead, despite him having been down in the count 
at one point. Oh, two. Rainey with this performance fell to 11 for 15 on saves in the 2022 regular season. And then Carl Edwards Jr. struggled. He in the top of the 10th allowed three runs to earn as he began the inning by allowing four consecutive singles. And then the 3-2-10 inning loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Monday, Tanner Rainey got got again. Top of the 10th, he allowed two runs, one earned. Uh, now he got off to a great start. He struck out the Marlins numbers two and three batters, Jesus Aguilar and Brian Anderson on a total of just seven pitches. But Rainey then gave up a two-out tie-breaking two-run homer to Brian De La Cruz off the left field foul pole for a 3-1 Marlins lead. Uh, the homer went a projected 411 feet per stat cast, and Rainey then issued a two-out five-pitch walk of Nick Fortes. Tanner Rainey has not been good for weeks now. Even in outings in which he does not give up runs, Tanner Rainey, it feels like, never has clean innings anymore. You know, it feels like every outing now, he's good for at least a walk and something more. And lately, it's been a walk and a homer. And Tanner Rainey gave up two big-time home runs in this series. Uh, Here was Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference on Monday afternoon on Tanner Rainey. We got to stay positive with him. You know, my conversation will be, hey, you know, um, you just got to keep going. I mean, he gets he gets the two outs. He was throwing Paul well, and then uh, he throws one pitch, you know, down the middle. Um, and he got the barrel to it. I mean, he hit it hard. So, um, but like you said, he's throwing it. Yeah, he's through, got two outs, struck out two guys. Uh, just couldn't get that third out. No, Tanner Rainey could not get that third out, uh, not before giving up two runs anyway. But there still was a good bit of good from the Nats bullpen in this series. Uh, This kind of gets lost with what happened in the series, but I do want to highlight the good from the Nats bullpen in the series. Friday night, the 6-3 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park. Three Nats relievers combined to toss three and a third scoreless innings. Erasmo Ramirez won in a third scoreless innings. Reed Garrett then came into the game. This was his first appearance in a game since June 18th, but he tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. And then Mason Thompson tossed a scoreless top of the ninth. Uh, Mason Thompson is back. The Nats on Friday afternoon designated reliever Sam Clay for assignment and returned from rehabilitation assignment and reinstated reliever Mason Thompson from the 60-day injured list. Uh, The Nats on April 10th placed Thompson on the 10-day injured list with a right bicep strain. Then on May 10th, transferred Thompson to the 60-day IL, and now he's back, and he looked pretty good over the weekend. Uh, Saturday, 5-3 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park. Three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in five innings. Andres Machado, two scoreless innings. Reed Garrett in the top of the seventh did allow a run, but then Steve Ciszek tossed two perfect innings with two strikeouts. Uh, Sunday afternoon, prior to Tanner Rainey and Carl Edwards Jr. struggling, we had Mason Thompson and Kyle Finnegan doing well. Thompson, perfect top of the seventh. Finnegan, perfect top of the eighth to preserve a two-all tie, including striking out the Marlins' number one batter, John Birdie, on eight pitches. And then on Monday, prior to Tanner Rainey struggling, we had Steve Ciszek and Kyle Finnegan doing well. Ciszek, scoreless top of the eighth with two strikeouts. Finnegan, a scoreless top of the ninth. And next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies Tuesday through Thursday. Game one, Tuesday night at 7.05, Paolo Espino will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Game two, Wednesday night at 7.05, Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. And Game 3, Thursday afternoon at 4.05, the Nats' starting pitcher is to be determined uh, now that Jackson Tatro is on the 15-day I.L.
Well, the Orioles, like the Nationals, played a 10-inning game on Monday. The O's, like the Nats, have a struggling closer right now. But the O's, unlike the Nats, did win on Monday. A 7-6, 10-inning win over the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon in Game 1 of a three-game series. As the O's, Joe Angel, again, were in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column, a July 4th version of the win column uh, for the O's. Two consecutive wins now for the O's off a four-game losing streak. Uh, this win over the Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Monday afternoon came off the O's losing two or three games at the Minnesota Twins. Friday night, a 3-2 loss. Saturday afternoon, a 4-3 loss. Sunday afternoon, a 3-1 win. Uh, the O's in the 2022 regular season now are 37 and 44. Wild last few days for the O's, and a lot of this has to do with Jorge Lopez. Uh, Jorge Lopez had been outstanding this season. He had been one of the best relievers in the majors this season, but he now has given up a home run in each of his last three outings. Uh, this is troubling. Let's take things in order. Friday night, the 3-2 loss at the Twins. Jorge Lopez blew it. He faced two batters and did not record an out. He entered the game to begin the bottom of the ninth with the O's nursing a 2-1 lead. He gave up a leadoff full count single to Luis Arise and then gave up a walk-off two-run homer to Byron Buxton to left field on a 1-2 pitch. The home run was the first home run given up by Jorge Lopez in this 2022 regular season. Lopez had not allowed an earned run since May 19th. The next day, the 4-3 loss at the Twins on Saturday afternoon, Jorge Lopez blew a save in the bottom of the ninth with the O's clinging to a one-run lead for a second consecutive game. He faced five batters and gave up four hits. Uh, Lopez entered the game in the bottom of the ninth with the O's nursing a 3-2 lead, but he gave up a leadoff homer to Jorge Polanco on a bomb to center field to tie the game at three. The homer went a projected 425 feet per stat cast. Lopez did then strike out Nick Gordon on three pitches, but Lopez then gave up a one-out double to Alex Kirilov, despite him having been down to the count of 1.12. Lopez then gave up a one-out single to Gary Sanchez, and Lopez then gave up a one-out walk-off RBI single to Jose Miranda, on an 0-2 pitch. The following day, the 3-1 win at the Twins on Sunday afternoon. O's manager Brandon Hyde tellingly went with Dylan Tate and not Jorge Lopez to pitch the bottom of the ninth, and Tate got the job done. Tate tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts. Uh, Dylan Tate has been very good for the O's this season. Dylan Tate in this 2022 regular season as an ERA of 2-11. And then on Monday afternoon, uh, what did end up being a win for the O's, a 7-6, 10-inning win over the Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Jorge Lopez was bad for a third consecutive outing. He entered the game to begin the top of the ninth with the game tied at five. He gave up a leadoff home run to Marcus Semien to left field for a 6-5 Rangers lead. The homer went a projected 418 feet per stat cast. And Lopez then issued a six-pitch walk of Corey Seager despite him having been down to the count of 1.12. Now, Lopez did then record three consecutive outs, including two strikeouts, and the O's did end up winning the game. But what is up with Jorge Lopez right now? His ERA for the 2022 regular season has ballooned, has gone from 0.73 to 1.88 with what has happened over his last 
three outings. Uh, this was Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Monday afternoon on Jorge Lopez. You know, Lopi had really good stuff today. You know, Simeon um, just beat him. Um, you know, fastball in where, where Simeon's done it to, <laughs> that to us in the past. Uh, um, but he had really good stuff after that. And um, we just need to get through this. Yes, you do. It's a funny thing with closers. It's a funny thing with ace relievers because they can be so good. They can be lights out. And then as soon as they are proven to be mortal, as soon as the hot run ends, then it can all fall apart. It's crazy to me how this can be, but it be. And we're seeing that here with Jorge Lopez. He was basically untouchable for the bulk of this season. And now over his last three outings, it feels like he can't be trusted at all. I mean, again, he's given up a home run in each of his last three outings in one weekend, essentially. Jorge Lopez's season completely turned around. Now, he certainly can get back on track, uh, but he's got to do that here. Uh, You know, it's funny, the four relievers not named Jorge Lopez, who Brandon Hyde used on Monday afternoon, uh, were terrific. Uh, Nick Vespi, Felix Batista, CNL Perez, and Brian Baker, those four guys combined for four in the third scoreless innings with seven strikeouts. So the Orioles' bullpen beyond Jorge Lopez was very good on Monday afternoon. And it's a good thing that that was the case because the Orioles starting pitcher on Monday afternoon was not good. Uh, Dean Kramer on Monday afternoon was bad for the first time in five starts. Uh, Kramer on Monday afternoon, five runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, and seven singles. He issued two walks. He did record four strikeouts, but he over his four and two-thirds innings threw 92 pitches, 61 strikes, versus 31 balls. Uh, Kramer was on the 10-day injured list for a while this season, April 11th, retroactive to April 8th to June 5th with a left oblique strain. He, over his last four starts, had been terrific, including his most recent outing prior to Monday afternoon's outing, a 2-0 loss at the Seattle Mariners last Tuesday night. Kramer in that game, seven scoreless innings, but Kramer on Monday afternoon struggled. Uh, the O's won on Monday afternoon on a walk-off bases loaded hit-by-pitch uh, that was drawn by Jorge Mateo in the bottom of the 10th. Hey, the O's will take it, all right? Uh, but the two big offensive heroes for the O's on Monday afternoon were Adley Rutschman and Cedric Mullins. Uh, Rutschman as the Orioles starting catcher and number five batter, two for four with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. Uh, Rutschman in the Orioles, one run ninth, a two-out RBI double off the right field wall to tie the game at six. You know, Rutschman had gone back to struggling here. He came into the game having gone 0 for 15 with one walk over his previous four games. But Rutschman on Monday afternoon, the big RBI double in the bottom of the ninth to tie the game at six. Here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Monday afternoon on the Rutschman RBI double. Yeah, huge. Yeah, I mean, let's start with Mancini to lead off lead off the inning. Let me run McKenna, who's, who can, who's a plus runner, and, and you know, Rutsch comes up with... Uh, yeah, huge moment for uh, for him. Huge, huge moment for us. Um, we got a nice carom there to allow, allow McKenna to score. And um, but yeah, Rush, you know, Rush has been grinding a little bit. You got the infield single there that that first at bat. You know that um, felt good to get a hit in the in the column, and then and then delivers a big hit late. 
Yeah, and then Cedric Mullins on Monday afternoon as the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, two for five with a solo homer handed RBI double. Mullins in the Orioles one run third had a first pitch RBI double and Mullins in the Orioles one run fifth, a one out first pitch solo homer to center field to begin the Orioles comeback. Yes, this was another Orioles win this season that featured the O's rallying. The O's in this game overcame a 5-2 fifth inning deficit. Uh, That home run by Cedric Mullins went a projected 423 feet for a stat cast. Uh, A few other items from the O's losing two or three games at the Twins Friday through Sunday. Uh, What a series for Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, Now, Mountcastle on Monday afternoon did struggle 0 for 5 left four men on base, but Mountcastle at the Twins was a monster. The Orioles' offense was not very good in this series, but Mountcastle was very good in this series. He was the Orioles' starting first baseman at all three games in the series. He, in the series, went 5 for 11 with a home run, three doubles, a single, and a walk. Ryan Mountcastle in the series had as many total bases as he had at-bats, 11. He slugged 1,000 for the series. Uh, Mountcastle in the 3-2 loss at the Twins on Friday night as the Orioles starting first base bit a number four batter, two for four with a double and a single. Mountcastle in the 4-3 loss at the Twins on Saturday afternoon as the Orioles starting first baseman and number five batter, one for three with a double and a walk. And Mountcastle in the 3-1 win at the Twins on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles starting first baseman and number three batter, two for four with a solo homer and a double. Uh, Mountcastle in the Orioles' two-run sixth, a first-pitch solo homer to left field, one pitch after Trey Mancini smashed a leadoff homer to the second deck in left field on a 1-2 pitch. Ryan Mountcastle has been an extra bases machine for a while here. He has been locked in really since the start of the month of June, and uh, he had some series at the Twins. Also, the O's lost two or three games at the Twins despite getting good starting pitching in all three games in the series. Really, if Jorge Lopez has his act together, this series could have ended up being a three-game sweep for the O's. Uh, Spencer Watkins in game one was good for a second consecutive start. Watkins in the 3-2 loss at the Twins on Friday night. One run in six innings. He had five strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just three hits, a double and two singles. He threw 79 pitches, 52 strikes versus 27 balls. Uh, the O's on June 25th recalled Watkins from A Norfolk. The O's on June 8th had reinstated Watkins from the 15-day injured list and optioned him to Norfolk. Uh, Watkins was on the 15-day injured list from May 23rd until June 8th due to a right elbow contusion. Uh, Watkins in a 6-2 win at the Chicago White Sox on June 25th. One run, which was unearned in five innings. And then he did what he did on Friday night at the Twins. Uh, Jordan Lyles in game two of that series was good for a second time in three starts. Lyles in the 4-3 loss at the Twins on Saturday afternoon. One run in six into third innings, seven strikeouts versus one walk. Terrific. Uh, only gave up four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles through 100 pitches, 64 strikes versus 36 balls. Navigated his way out of some trouble. Lyle somehow tossed a scoreless bottom of the third despite having runners on second and third with no outs. And then the guy who really has emerged as the Orioles' ace this season was good again. Game three, Tyler Wells, good for a fourth consecutive start. Wells in the 3-1 win at the Twins on Sunday afternoon. One run in six innings, seven strikeouts versus just one walk and three hits, which were a double and two singles. He threw 90 pitches, 57 strikes versus 33 balls. If you are an Orioles fan, you tell me, is there an Orioles starting pitcher who you trust more right now 
than Tyler Wells. Uh, Tyler Wells now over 16 starts in the 2022 regular season has an ERA of 3.09 and a whip of one. And remember, this is a guy making the transition from relief pitcher to starter. And he has been the Orioles' most consistent starting pitcher this season. And he is on a nice run here now. Four consecutive impressive outings for Tyler Wells. Uh, and this latest outing came against the team that he used to be with. Uh, the O's selected Tyler Wells from the Twins in December 2020 in the Rule 5 draft. Game 2 for the O's against the Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Tuesday night at 7.05. Austin Voth will be the Orioles starting pitcher in what figures to be a bullpen game for the O's. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 350. will feature plenty on the Commanders, Nationals, and Orioles. And that's on Tuesday night at 7.05. We'll begin a three-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. The O's on Tuesday night at 7.05. will play game two of their three-game series against the Texas Rangers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.